Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And, and let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for you, for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the way you have uh, built your universe to run, and we thank you for the love that you have poured out upon us through Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, make us effective at uh, carrying the final message of mercy to the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing Lesson 5 in the quarterly, in the last days, the message of Hebrews, and the title is Jesus the Giver of Rest. When you hear the title, with just the title, Jesus the Giver of Rest, where do you think the focus is going to take us? You guys are good. Yes, the focus is on the Sabbath. That's exactly right. As we consider the Sabbath this week, let me set a setting for you. It comes out of the book Great Controversy, page 582. I've been been quoting this little paragraph recently many times, but I'm going to quote it again. And I want us to discuss the Sabbath in in the light of this this idea. Here, Here it goes. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the longstanding controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of man and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. You got that idea set in your mind now? The great, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, the last great conflict, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. So the long-standing controversy, we're entering the last conflict which concerns the law of God. Now the question, where did this long-standing controversy over the law of God begin? And when Satan began this long-standing controversy over the law of God in heaven, was there a Sabbath? There was not. For anybody who is going like, wait, just remember, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for angels. (laughs) No, the Sabbath was made for man. And the Sabbath was made at the end of creation week. And human beings were made after... Satan rebelled in heaven. The uh, author of the great controversy quote uh, saw it that way and wrote the following in the book Confrontation, um, page 18. And uh, I'm going to read a little out of that and we'll unpack that. Angels on probation had been deceived by Satan and had been led on by him in the great rebellion in heaven against Christ. First sentence. Just going to pause. Angels on probation? Probation? What does this mean? That they're the angels that were in question about. But angels on probation. All of them. What is probation? It's a trial period. A period one gives an opportunity. You've been hired on a probationary basis in this job. Okay. It's a trial period, a period uh, to uh, demonstrate and give a person opportunity to demonstrate themselves. Why were the angels on probation? Because Satan had been telling lies about God, and they were trying to decide whether 
he was telling Ah, so what kind of probation is this? Is this a legal probation? Or is this a probation of who they're going to choose to trust, who they're going to choose to believe, what methods they're going to choose to practice and how they deal with other angels and beings? Okay? Uh, notice also that this sentence says that uh, he, be, he led them on his great belly in heaven against Christ. Satan's rebellion was not a direct attack, a direct attack on the Father. It was a, a challenge of the authority and position of Christ. Satan alleged equality with Christ. And then he used that claim of equality with Christ to allege unfairness on God. Because God allowed Jesus into certain councils that Lucifer was not permitted in. And that alleged equality attacking the authority and position of Christ inferred that God was unfair. What's the Bible say? First Timothy 6.16, that God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable by whom? We've said this before. God is an infinite being. Infinite. Infinite in power. Infinite in majesty. Infinite in knowledge. Infinite. He's an, infinite. All created beings, including Lucifer, are finite beings. Can a finite being actually enter into and process infinity? No. Jesus was not a finite being. Jesus is an infinite being who would leave whatever infinity is and enter into linear existence to, and interact with his physical created beings on their plane. But God is the only infinite? The Holy Spirit's not infinite either? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all infinite beings. I thought you just said Jesus was infinite. I didn't say Jesus wasn't. I said Jesus would leave infinity and enter into linear existence to interact with his created beings on their plane. But I just said he, Jesus was an infinite being. This is why Jesus could enter the councils, because Jesus can process infinity. Does that make sense? Okay? Can we argue that they were on probation even before Lucifer began his rebellion? Sure they were. They were always on probation. Yep. To develop character. Yep, yep, yep. No matter what. That's right. Next sentence in this quote. Uh, the angels failed to endure the test brought upon them, and they fell. Who brought this test upon them? Well, the circumstances presented them with a decision, and they were tested in their belief, their loyalty, their values. Who were they? So the test was brought by Satan presenting the lies and the circumstance. That tested them. What would they do? They tested their characters, tested whether they would uh, trust God and, and, and or, tr or believe the lies. Next sentence. Adam, notice, so, so here we have, rebellion started in heaven. Angels were tested by the lies of Satan. They fell. Next sentence. Adam was then created in the image of God and placed on, upon probation. Adam was created, according to this author, my perspective is the same, after the war began in heaven, after sin. And remember our context we're talking about, the quote. The last struggle, the final struggle... The long-standing controversy is over the law of God that began in heaven before there was a Sabbath. So we're asking the question, how does the Sabbath fit into the final struggle if it's the completion of the final struggle that began in heaven before there was a Sabbath? This is what we're questioning. This is what we're trying to process. 
next, in this quote from Confrontation. Adam was then created in the image of God and placed upon probation. Same type of probation that the angels had in heaven. It was merely the time to de- decide what character he would develop, who he'd be loyal to, what systems he would believe, uh, would he believe truth, would he believe life, so forth and so on. Next thing. He had a perfectly developed, he was, he had a perfectly developed organism. All his faculties were harmonious. In all his emotions, words, and actions, there was a perfect conformity to the will of his maker. After God had made every provision for the happiness of man and had supplied his every want, he tested his loyalty. If the pair should, as obedient, if the pair should be obedient, the race would, would after a time be made equal to the angels. As Adam and Eve failed to bear this test, Christ proposed to become a voluntary offering for man. Tested. What's that mean? He tested their loyalty. Yes. It seems that discernment has to do with a test that you have to sort information, but if you don't go toward the path of truth, your discernment gets warped or it hasn't developed to the point to see what the real thing versus the unreal. No, you're exactly right. What you're describing is um, both the law of worship and the law of exertion. Okay? What we exercise gets stronger. If we don't use it, we lose it. By beholding, we become changed. So believing lies alters, and once we believe a lie, it becomes a premise or a base construct that we then view the next thing through. And if that thing we believe is false, it puts a certain warping or perspective on the next thing that comes. For instance, if we have a base premise, there is no God, we evolve from lower life forms. And then we go out somewhere and we see a fossil. We will take whatever the data is from that. We will interpret through this first this belief that there is no God. We evolved over millions of years, and we will project in conclusions that are actually not in the data itself. So you're exactly right. Our discernment is undermined by the more lies and falsehoods we believe. Okay, that's exactly true. So back to this question. He, he was tested. Okay, he's in a perfect world. His organism is perfect. He has no carnal nature. Uh, he has no propensities to evil. This is Adam and Eve and Eden now. They're being tested. Remember the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil? This is not the tree of data of good and evil. This is not the tree of fact checklists of good and evil. This tree of knowledge. In Scripture, knowledge is, is, is experiential. Adam knew his wife Eve, conceived and gave a son. Uh, life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. Not know about. That's data. Know is experience with. So, Many of us know about various recent presidents of the United States. We know about them. How many of you know them? You see, there's a big difference in that, isn't there? Okay? This is we have knowledge of good and evil. What they will choose to know in their heart and character. Will they choose to trust God and say no to the temptation and not take the fruit? And thus they will know loyalty. They will know love. They will know faithfulness. They will know truth. They will know. They will solidify themselves in heart, mind, character. They will know God. Or will they choose to believe the lie and know fear, no selfishness, no disloyalty, no corruption? That's what they know. That's who they become. This is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
They will know one of the two by their choice. They had the capacity in themselves, without external help from the Holy Spirit, to choose at that tree to know good and solidify and develop a righteous character. They had that ability. We don't. We require external help from the Holy Spirit to develop a righteous character. Yes. And humans were made lower than the angels. She said humans were made lower than the angels. I guess you'll have to define what you mean by lower. What do you mean by lower? Not to have the same ability as angels. What ability did they not have? We have procreative abilities. Um, as far as I know, angels don't. That's an ability that makes us higher than the angels. <laughs> True. <laughs> Uh, we have dominion to govern uh, uh, other life forms on earth. Uh, Adam and Eve were given dominion to govern the earth. That's uh, uh, an ability the angels didn't have. Uh, yes, Wendell. I think that concept comes from Hebrews where it says Christ was a little bit lower than the angels temporarily. Right. And he became lower than the angels temporarily because he gave up much of his prerogatives, because he became incarnate, and because he became incarnate in a weakened and damaged physiology from Adam. Yeah. So, uh, back to the Sabbath, after we've talked about all this now. How does the Sabbath fit into the conflict between truth and error that is the, the long-standing conflict that began before there was a Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath was made for man. Do you think God had a purpose for the Sabbath for man? Did God foreknow? that Adam and Eve would fall into sin. And did Adam foreknow that their children, all of us, would struggle with sin? So he made a Sabbath with foreknowledge that man would sin and we would struggle. Is there some purpose in making the Sabbath for man knowing that man would fall into sin? Has it got some purpose in that? Yes. What is it? Time of communion. In Eden prior to the fall, did God come and commune with him every day in the cool of the day? Seven days a week. Are we in our own sinful journey here on earth only able to commune with God on Sabbath? I don't disagree with you. But I'm looking for something that sets it apart so Sabbath absolutely is a time for communion. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. Well, it was a commemoration of, of creation, for one thing. Commemoration of creation, okay. I like where you're going with that. Anything else? Made for man, knowing that man was going to sin. Given before sin, but God foreknew they were going to sin. In Deuteronomy, it says the, uh, the Sabbath was a memorial of bringing them out of Egypt. Okay. So... <laughs> No, no question about that. How about these two texts? Exodus 31.13 and Ezekiel 20.12. Exodus 31.13, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you might know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. And Ezekiel, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, make them holy. Go ahead, Wendell. So, in our human state, in our sinful human state, we tend to do our own works. We try to make our own holiness and whatnot. 
And Sabbath is a time for us to come and rest from our own works, attempts or whatever, a reminder that it is God the Creator, God is the healer, God is the righteous one. Okay, so I don't disagree that the Sabbath is a time that we can come apart and rest. You're suggesting we rest from working for our own salvation. And we only rest from working for our own salvation one day in seven. No, it reminds us we have to do that. Oh, okay, it reminds us. Okay, all right, all right. So, so it is a sign that God is the one who makes us holy. What does it mean to be made holy? God rested his case in, in, in courtroom terminology. He was finished. He had demonstrated during the process of creation his power or other things that he wanted to present, but then he rested his case. Yep. There was a rest that they needed to learn that was not learned in the day-to-day things as if the rest of the Sabbath was something God was trying to teach them that he set aside the Sabbath for him to fellowship so that they would learn something from him during these hours that was different from what they would learn throughout the rest of the week's activity. That made the Sabbath hours of fellowship with him for learning a different kind of rest than they were learning otherwise. So what is the, what is the kind of rest you have on Sabbath that you don't have the rest of the week? I think that's a... You said there's a different kind of rest. Well, how is it different? Opening in a focused fellowship that is different from... How? How is it different? Or, you're taking this farther than I've ever Well, no, this is... No, no, you're, you're, you're articulating a very classic Adventist argument uh, that, that, that actually fails, fails on substance. Okay. Okay. Um, an Adventist pastor would say, well, it, um, it, it would be like, take seven envelopes, and one envelope you put a $20 bill in. Okay? The other six don't have it. The Sabbath is like that one with the $20 bill. It's got something special in it that the others don't have. I said, okay, what is it? And they can never tell you. They never tell you. It's, it, this is an argument, and, and I'm not suggesting the Sabbath isn't special in some way, but if we're going to make that position, then we need to be articulated. What is different? Well, for me, yes, it's a day that I don't have to worry about anything. It's okay. a day that I can, I can have peace. Seriously, I don't, I don't worry about anything. It's a day I have peace from my everyday worries, no matter what they are. And it puts me in more of an attitude of, of gratefulness, of thankfulness, that God did give us this time, that we can freely say it's his. And our Sunday-keeping friends... They can't have that same peace and not worry with their no relationship with the Lord? <laughs> no, I have many that do. I have many patients that do. They have that trusting, abiding relationship with the Lord, and they trust Him, and they don't worry. What? I said, I'm just teasing. We know okay. that they can have the same rest. So then, how does the Sabbath provide something? Yes. I mean, we want to have that same peace and rest in our heart every day. Every day, yeah. Okay. All, all seven days, yes. In a practical sense, I think if God didn't institute a day you know, for humans to rest, I think humans would probably end up working seven days a week, and that's going to break down your psychology and physiology if you're working every single day during the week. Okay, so even though it was given in Eden before the fall, um, your, his foreknowledge, he gave it knowing that we would need that one day for physiologic rest and psychological rest. Okay. Spill it. And spiritual. Well, under the context of rest, who, 
Who, who gets more rest, the slave or the free man? Okay. So, so under the context of rest, who gets more rest on Sabbath? The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Adventist pastors or the, uh, the non-Adventist pastors? How are we? Adventist pastors, I know many of them, uh, they've told me they take their day of rest on Sunday. Sunday is their day of rest because they work so hard on Sabbath. It's true. Ask some, they'll tell you. Yes. So how are we defining rest? How are we defining? Well, we're not going there. I'm going to go with my notes. You can do, you can, I mean, if you want to have that discussion, go ahead, have that discussion. How do you define rest? Rest is peace in your heart. It's not about a day. Rest is peace in your heart. It's not about a day. So the Bible says that the Sabbath was given as a sign that the Lord is one who makes us holy. Does the Sabbath say the sign is, excuse me, does the Bible say that the sign that he makes us holy is the Sabbath? Or the sign that he makes us holy is our Sabbath keeping? <laughs> Which is the sign that he's making you holy? Or is it both? Both the day and your, and your works, your, your, your activities. His blessing. His blessing. Well, a sign. What is a sign? A marker. Yeah, yeah, a signal. And uh, go ahead. A data point to show which side you're on, which is true, which is false. Uh, a data point to show which side you're on. So those who wanted Christ off the cross by sunset to keep the Sabbath were on His side. <laughs> that's that's what we're going with here. It's a sign. If you're if you're keeping the Sabbath, you're on Christ's you're on Christ's side. Somehow that doesn't work. But you're not wrong either. Put together with everything else. It's a sign of the uh, freedom that is universal. Oh, I really like where you're going with that. Yeah. It gives you the opportunity to decide where you are. It's a uh, periodic cycle so that you get faced with this. So the Sabbath is a sign, a mark, a meaning, something we're to, that stands to remind us, an indicator of something. In medicine, there are signs and symptoms. They're to indicate something. Sabbath is a sign from God that he makes us holy. It's to be remembered, not forgotten. Remember the Sabbath. But as we remember the Sabbath, what do we remember? What do we remember that, that is somehow relevant to the whole concept of its purpose being made for man in God making us holy? If... What if we have the right day and we attach and remember lies about the meaning of the day, but we have the right day and we keep it all week long through the lens of an imposed law from an, a, a dictatorial God who will punish you if, if you don't keep it in the right way. And if you, if you forget and do something that's unapproved on the list, you have to get forgiveness of that because if you don't, that's a demerit in a book that'll be judged uh, one day. But you got the right day. And you keep it. And you remember all these things about an imperial God who's testing your obedience to see if you will obey the rules. If you remember the Sabbath in this way, are you being made holy? 
Well, did the Jews in Christ's day have the right day of the week? Yes. Did they remember the Sabbath? And what did it remind them of? Did they, for instance, remember that God was creator? Did they remember that they were delivered by God from Egypt, as was mentioned earlier? Did they remember a Messiah was promised? Did they remember that they were a special and chosen people and the Sabbath was a sign that separated them from the others around them and made them a a called and set-apart people? Did they remember that? Yes. Yes. Yes, they did. The Sabbath made them special. They weren't part of those uh, dirty, rotten, scoundrel Samaritans. And did these Jews who remembered the Sabbath and many of the things it stood for kill the Lord of the Sabbath? So is remembering the Sabbath day, the right day, and many of the things attached that we always list as the meaning, creation, salvation, deliverance from, from bondage and so forth, does remembering all of these things actually prepare us for the last days? Is there something missing? Yep. So what, what did the Jews not remember? What's missing? The God of the Sabbath. The God of the Sabbath. I won't disagree with that at all, because they certainly didn't recognize him. Forgot about love. Forgot about what? Love. Forgot about love, which goes to God of the Sabbath and character, which goes to the point I'm going to make, which is, what's the point I make in here all the time? And what what was it we opened the question on here today? The final struggle is but the... Over his law. law. They didn't understand design law. They viewed it as imperial. Rules that you had to keep. Legal systems. Sacrifice that had to be paid to pay off the debt. This is how they viewed it. They didn't understand design law. Remember what is really revealed about the Sabbath. What it's an actual sign of. And several of you have said it in here already. Of creation. God's power. God's power. Was, Was God's power really ever questioned? He's not powerful. Uh, I, Lucifer, challenge God to an arm wrestling contest. I'm stronger. I've got more power. Was that, was that actually ever in question? Whether God is truly good. Oh, good. So not having power, that was never in question. Was he trustworthy to use the power? That was the question. Not whether he had it. It was, it was, it was already understood he had the power. But he wasn't trustworthy because he gave some to Michael, elevated Michael, according to the allegations of Lucifer. Of course, we know Jesus, Michael in his pre-incarnate form, was an infinite God and had a power inherent. It was never given to him. It was always his by, by, by nature. That's why it says in Philippians, uh, equality with God. Christ didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped. Okay, He had it. He didn't have to grasp it. He humbled himself. Okay, but Lucifer's allegation was God wasn't. He gave power to to Michael. Didn't give any to me. He gave him elevation, and we have a ruler over us now. When God came out and announced the reality that was always true, the reality that was always true was Jesus is fully God. He shares the throne. That's reality. It's always been true. But why did he have to announce it? Because Lucifer alleged he wasn't fully equal with God. And so this is the this is the dynamic that's going on. And what does the Sabbath reveal? Not that he has power. But that he's trustworthy. 
But, but after, so understand, context, context. What's happening in the universe? War. He had just demonstrated how powerful he was. But, but what's happening in the universe as, as he goes to demonstrate that power? Well, as, he, as he goes to create, what's happening in the universe? There's war. There's war. Over who the intelligent beings in the universe can trust. He didn't use his power. Over God's right to rule. And so what do we see that he demonstrates incredible infinite power that week? But at the end of the week, what does God do? As you said it earlier. I rest. In other words, God restrains himself and stops using power. The Sabbath is a day God does not use power anymore, but he steps back and creates a time for freedom to think. I've given you evidence. I've given this evidence of, a, of an entire ecosystem built to operate on love. Everything that lives gives to something else. The whole law of love built into the whole ecosystem with two intelligent beings who can come into the unity of love and create beings in their own image and govern the planet and self-sacrificial. The whole system was a microcosm of God's entire universe with Adam and Eve representing the Godhead. The whole system. Universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence. I rest. And what does it say about God that in the face of an attack against his right to rule, with all this power, he doesn't actually use that power to threaten, to coerce, to intimidate, to force, to demand, to inflict punishment upon, to execute his enemies, He actually leaves them all free. The Sabbath is a sign, an evidence, a marker of God who makes us holy. And we remember the Sabbath. And as we remember the Sabbath, we remember the character of the one, the methods of the one, the design laws of the one. By beholding, we become changed. We're wanting to trust with him. We open the heart to him. We rest in his completed work in Christ for us. And the Spirit indwells us, recreates us, transforms us, makes us holy. And the Sabbath, rightly understood, is a sign of truth presented in love, leaving free. And the kindness of God wins us. leads us or wins us to repentance. And this is what the Sabbath is a sign of. And this is why Satan hates it. This is why Satan tried to replace it. And if he can't replace it, he tries to get it to be presented through the imperial law model, a system of rules that, that you have to keep and you have a whole long list, list and therefore the Sabbath becomes the most burdened and stressful day of the week and you walk around for 24 hours in fear every week. Did I, did I take too many steps? Did I lift too many boxes out of my car? Is that considered work? Did, did, did the, did the, did the radio, oh, oh I, I, the radio popped on, uh, uh, my, uh, automatically and, and it was not playing a Sabbath song in my car. Oh, did I break the Sabbath? Um, I mean, do you know how many, Adventists live in this type of hell. And it is a form of hell. There's no peace in that kind of Sabbath. There's no joy. There's no transformation. Uh, Isaiah tells us the Sabbath isn't a delight. You're not even keeping it. So being made holy, it says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. And then 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. 
But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. How does the Sabbath fit in? Every week, it's a reminder of God's character method, the, the one you can absolutely trust, how he uses power. He won't coerce you. you the, do you understand? If you've ever been in a dating relationship, or maybe a marriage relationship, hopefully not, but a dating relationship in which somebody didn't give you freedom. They, control, they tried to control you. They tried to intimidate you, whether with emotional coercion or physical coercion. What happened to love in that relationship? And then what happened if you got out and you met somebody who actually gave you real freedom? That you actually knew. You were free to be you. Did, did the freedom to be you drive you away or draw you to them? Love grows in an atmosphere of freedom. We understand the Sabbath and the freedom that we have with God. He will not use his power against us. His power is always used for his creation. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare us up but gave him up, how will we not along with him give us all things? There's this, but when you have the wrong law model, and this law, wrong law model is deeply infected Christianity, including the Adventist church, and you will find it appearing week after week in these lesson guides. And they will teach that God, in order to be just, has to inflict punishment upon lawbreakers. And ultimately, he has to be paid with the blood of a sinless human sacrifice not to kill us. And they will present Jesus as presenting a sacrifice to the Father on our behalf. Deeply distorted. There's no freedom in that. If God were to run his universe that way, you understand we can't trust him. We need somebody to stand between us and him to protect us from him. There's no peace there. There's no freedom there. We're coerced. Love won't grow there. That's Satan's view of reality. That is the penal legal model of salvation. The Adventist church was actually called into existence to finish the Reformation and oppose that view, to advance the, the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, the eternal gospel about what God has always been like from eternity past and eternity future, to call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, to elevate the Sabbath for what it actually represents, which is a memorial of God's character, truth, present, and love, leaving people free. But just like the Jews 2,000 years ago, who were also God's called people to prepare the world for the first advent, the Adventist church who is called to prepare the world for the second advent are deeply infected with imperial law, and they present the right day of the week through a legalistic system that makes God out to be a punishing God and fills the Adventist community with terrible fear of breaking a rule on the Sabbath and getting in legal trouble. Am I wrong about this? No. So the Sabbath... Set of education, page 124, about becoming holy or sanctified. It says, the mind occupied with com commonplace matters only becomes dwarfed and enfeebled. It never, if never tasked to comprehend grand and far-reaching themes, it after time loses the power of growth. What you were saying back there a moment ago, David. Uh, as the safeguard against this degeneracy and a stimulus to development Nothing can equal the study of God's word. 
as a means of intellectual training, the Bible is more effective than any other book or all other books combined. The greatness of its themes, the dignified simplicity of its utterances, the beauty of its imagery quicken and uplift the thoughts as nothing else can. No other study can impart such mental power as does the effort to grasp stupendous truths of revelation. I can tell you I read this many years ago, and I go, oh, I want better mental powers. I'm going to study the Bible more. (laughs) Really? Now, maybe that was a selfish thing to do, but I, I wanted to study these things. I wanted my mind to develop. I didn't want it to be enfeebled and dwarfed. Okay? Um... The mind thus brought into contact with the thoughts of the infinite cannot but expand and strengthen. And even greater is the power of the Bible in the development of of the spiritual nature. Man created for fellowship with God can only in such fellowship find his real life and development. Created to find in God his highest joy, he can find in nothing else that that which can quiet the cravings of the heart can satisfy the hunger and thirst of the soul. He who, with sincere and teachable spirit, studies God's word, seeking to comprehend its truths, will be brought in touch with its author. And except for his own choice, there is no limit to the possibilities of his development. Limit. We've talked about this. God is infinite. We're finite. How big is the gap? Infinite. And so if you follow, if you, if you have this humble, teachable spirit and you follow this, not just here on earth, but after the second coming and you continue to grow in a billion years, you've been walking down the path of infinite growth and you've had been, and you've been growing for a billion years in your knowledge and experience with God. How big is the gap that remains? (laughs) It's still an infinite gap. Isn't that exciting? We never stop advancing and growing. There's always something fun and new to learn, some new insight. Don't you love that feeling of, of an epiphany going off, a puzzle piece fitting in? Isn't that exciting? That's the future. That's what happens when we walk with the Lord. But, but understand, that's only true when you have an infinite God who's the God of, of reality. If you have a false religious system that is not actually a lover of truth, that, that the truth will overthrow some of these things, and, and, and that frightens you, and your belief system is designed to keep you from feeling these anxieties and fears, then you can't tolerate truth coming in. Read my blog this week on, on mass delusion. Mass delusion that's happening in society right now over COVID. <laughs> you, will, you will see the elements that contribute to it. You'll see how the enemy uses it. But you will see mass delusion, the same principles apply in many religious circles and how people stay stuck in delusional religious beliefs because they serve to keep the person from feeling certain forms of anxieties and helplessnesses and purposelessnesses and so forth. And so they hold to these beliefs and, and they're very resistant to something that would change them. But when we love truth, then we're open to have our beliefs developed and advanced and changed because we understand that that our security isn't in the doctrinal structure that we hold, but in a relationship with the God that we know. So, how again, how does the Sabbath fit into this conflict? Well, I'm going to now go back to the Great Controversy, 582, read that first paragraph, and then go in, into breaking down what she says right afterwards. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. The agencies to which 
The agencies which will unite against truth and righteousness in this contest are now actively at work. This final battle, the agencies working against God are actively at work. Do we see that in the world, in the church today? Active work against the eternal design laws of God. I see active work against it all around me. God's holy word, which has been handed down to us at such cost of suffering and blood, is but little valued. Do we see in the societies around the world, including in America, that the Bible has been devalued? Continuing on, the Bible is within reach of all, but there are few who really accept it as the guide of life. Infidelity prevails to an alarming extent, not in the world merely, but in the church. Many have come to deny doctrines that are the very pillar of the Christian faith, the great facts of creation as presented in the inspired writers. The fall of man, the atonement, the perpetuity of the law of God are all practically rejected, either wholly or in part, by a large share of the professed Christian world. Do we find this to be true? Have you seen Christians who've embraced evolutionary ideas as the way life came to be, even taught in some of our own universities? Not adaptation that things adapt and change. That's how God made us to epigenetically alter ourselves, and our children will have different uh, different uh, constellation of symptoms. The the sins uh, sins passed down three and four generations. That's adaptation. They're not changing to another type of uh, of a species. They're still human. Okay, adaptation. We're talking about the speciation evolution that is taught. That that in fact evolution is necessary for for human beings. God used evolution for us to evolve and become over millions of years. Do you understand? Evolution only happens through death, through killing the weak off, so the strong can survive. If you take that view, then God is the author of death, suffering, pain. This is the view of, of Satan, of course. But if we remember the Sabbath. And what it was designed to have us memorialize, remember, what is a sign of not just God's creation and power, but also his methods and principles, we would never be sucked into this, this delusion of a godless evolution. And it is a mass delusion because it's not based in reality. Uh, continuing on. Thousands who pride themselves upon their wisdom and independence regard uh, it as evidence of weakness to place implicit confidence in the Bible. They think it a proof of superior talent and learning to cavil at the scriptures and to spiritualize and explain away their most important truths. Do we find this happening? And yet the Bible is the supreme source of intellectual development and wisdom. And so we must cavil it away. It's not really important. But that quote out of education tells us it is the supreme source to help develop your mental faculties and discernment skills. The themes of the Bible are so deep, we can never fully penetrate them, at least not this side of eternity. Continuing on. Many ministers are teaching their people, and many professors and teachers are instructing their students that the law of God has been changed or abrogated. Here it is, folks. The final struggle, the last, the last struggle, is, is the final struggle over the law of God. What kind of law can you change? Or abrogate. Only human imposed laws, made up rules, legislated enactments, and so forth. You cannot abrogate or change design law. It's how the reality of our universe is built to function. Continuing on with the quote. Oh, and by the way, what about the Sabbath, though? If the Sabbath is not arbitrary, and it didn't exist prior to 
um, creation of this planet, then creating the Sabbath, doesn't that now create an arbitrary law? Isn't that a change in the law to create the Sabbath? No. Why not? God's law of liberty pre-existed the Sabbath. That's it's correct. A sign of the law. That's correct. That's correct. So I'm about to blow your mind, folks. <laughs> the Sabbath is a sign like the rainbow is a sign. Creating the rainbow didn't change the law of God. Neither did the Sabbath. It's a sign. And also, the Sabbath wasn't given as a rule any more than the rainbow was given as a rule. It was given as a gift, a resource, an opportunity for us to use or not. People can look at the rainbow and they can remember that God will never destroy the world by flood again and be thankful to him. Or they can look at the rainbow and not think of God at all and maybe even think of something else in society today. (laughs) The rainbow is what the rainbow is. What we think about it doesn't change it. How we react and interact with it doesn't change it. The Sabbath is a gift of God as a sign and an evidence of his methods built into time, built into time. The rainbow is built into physical reality. Sabbath is built into time. Both are signs of our creator. Both hold promises. Both are, tr- are designed to trigger us to remember And then hopefully those remembrances will lead us to awe, humble surrender, longing desire, loving commitment, adoration and becoming like. These are the things. So the Sabbath was not a change in the law to to create the Sabbath. It was a manifestation of the law uh, created into time as a gift for us. The law of liberty, law of love, all uh, evidence there. Okay. Um, That the law of God has been changed or abrogated, and those who regard its requirements as still valid to uh, to be literally obeyed are thought to be deserving of ridicule and contempt. Why? Because they view it as legal. People do not ridicule you as, as contemptible if you want to observe the laws of health. Some do. No. No, they're, they're only projecting out their own laziness. And, but they, they really don't. Uh, they don't. No, they don't. If you decide you don't want to smoke, you're a non-smoker, people don't look at you as, oh, you're just a legalist Christian who obeys a bunch of rules. They don't look at it that way. They know that that is actually a law of health. The reason people look at those who want to obey God's law literally this way is because they see it as a legalistic system of a checklist rules of a God. And they go, those, those rules are done away with, either done away with at the cross or, or that we, God doesn't exist at all. You're trapped in a legalistic uh, mythology system. That's how they view it. Keep, keep going. In, in rejecting the truth, men reject its author. In trampling upon the law of God, they deny the author, uh, the authority of the lawgiver. 
It is as easy to make an idol of false doctrines and theories as to fashion an idol of wood and stone. By misrepresenting the attributes of God, Satan leads men to conceive of him in a false character. With many, a philosophical idol is enthroned in the place of Jehovah. While the living God, as he is revealed in his word, in Christ and in the works of his creation, is worshipped but few. Remember, we started out a couple paragraphs before this. The final, the last conflict is a question of the law of God. Okay? The, the, pre, the laws of men versus the precepts of Jehovah. And here we are, that you can create a false idol by misrepresenting the attributes of God. Seeing him with attributes he doesn't possess. Worshipping a philosophical idol teaching that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, and if you uh, don't perform in certain ways and keep the right approved list that the church will give you on the things you're allowed to do and not to do, if your TV isn't off before sunset, if you don't protect the edges of the Sabbath in every activity of life, if you're still at the gas station three, three minutes before the sun goes down, you aren't protecting the edges, and you're a Sabbath breaker, and you're going to be in legal trouble. And the Lord will be required if you don't ask confession and claim the blood of Jesus for that sin to erase it from your book, he'll have to torture and kill you. This is a philosophical idol. It is, it, is, it is pagan worship to worship a God like that on the Sabbath. God is not this way. Thousands deify nature while they deny the God of nature. Next sentence. This is the green movement. This is the earth, earth save the earth advocates, the climate alarmists. They're in this camp. Earth is our mother. We must save her. They deny the true God of heaven and fail to realize that uh, as agents of Christ, we're interested in saving people because we know the planet is going to be destroyed and recreated anew. That's what's going to happen. Though in a different form, idolatry exists in the Christian world today as verily as it existed among ancient Israel at the time of Elijah. The God of many professed wise men of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of the polished, fashionable circles of many colleges and universities, even of some theological institutions, is little better than Baal, the sun god of Phoenicia. And remember Baal? Okay, he required appeasement. He's a, he a punishing god. This happens because they all believe you can get justice if you get the right laws, the right enforcement, and the right judges in place. Then you can have justice. And if you look what's happening in the world and all these places, the wise men, philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, and so forth and so on, they're all in the world. They, they have their different views of what they think is justice, but they're all seeking it through more laws, more enforcement, or defunding the people who enforce the laws. But it's still their, their goal to get the social justice, get your justice form out there through imperial rule, not through changing hearts to love your neighbor as yourself. No error accepted by the Christian world strikes more boldly against the authority of heaven. None is more directly opposed to the dictates of reason. None is more pernicious in its results than the modern doctrine so rapidly gaining around the world that God's law is no longer binding on men. Again, what kind of law do you have to assume God's law is before you can go down the trail of saying, well, that law's done away with, that law doesn't work, that, you don't, it's not binding on us anymore. The real lies about the law being imposed. No one would suggest that because Jesus died and we are promised new immortal bodies when he comes again, that the laws of health are no longer binding on us and you can do whatever you want. It has no effect on you. No one, we, we're promised an immortal body, right? Because of Jesus' victory, isn't that true? 
So therefore, laws of health have been done away with. You can have a poison ivy salad this afternoon. It'll have no effect. The Bible nowhere says, nowhere in the scripture does it say you can't eat poison ivy. You won't find a, 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 a prohibition on that. A hemlock chaser. And a hemlock chaser. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because after you do that, you'll want the hemlock to put you out of your misery. <laughs> uh-huh. The point is that everybody knows the laws of health are still binding because the laws of health are design laws. And all of God's, the moral laws are design laws as well. Wellness, mental health, healthy relationships, healthy societies all depend on the laws that God built life to operate upon. Not being a liar, cheat, fraud, uh, exploiter, um, pervert in some way. It, de- it depends on loving others. That's where we have health. I'm, I'm going to keep reading this. We're going to go over just a minute. Wherever the divine precepts are rejected, sin ceases to appear sinful or righteousness desirable. Those who refuse to submit to the government of God are wholly unfitted to govern themselves. What is the last fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Self-control or self-governance, that's right. But if we don't submit to the government of God, we lose self-control and self-government. This is a design law. It's the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. If we don't worship the Creator, then we're worshiping His enemy. Whether we know it or not, we're embracing the systems and methods of the world, the survival drives. And those they become stronger. And we lose the capacity for self-control, become more impulsive, more carnal, more lust-filled. Notice what comes next. Through their pernicious teachings, the spirit of insubordination is implanted in the heart of children and youth who are naturally impatient of control and lawless, licentious state of society results. Are we seeing this in society today? An absolute breakdown of social order. And where are we seeing it the most? In those municipalities who are most godless the ones who have the highest percentage of people who don't believe in the Bible and don't advance Christian principles. If you look in the cities and the states where you see the most decay and the most decadence happening, it is the place where the Bible has been removed from the hearts and minds of people the most. But they call themselves liberated or or liberals, (laughs) which is what liberated means. They're, they're liberal. They're free. But they're not. It's a big deception. It's what Satan always does. While scoffing at the credulity of those who obey the requirements of God, the multitudes eagerly accept the delusion of Satan. Absolutely delusional that you can throw off God and throw off Scripture and throw off God's principles and have freedom and have health. You get more chaos. You get more pain. You get more suffering. It's, it's a grand delusion, and we see this happening. Next sentence. Uh, they give the rein to lust and practice the sins which have called down the judgment upon the heathen. Do we see this happening in the world? Again, and what are God's judgments referred to here? They're either therapeutic interventions to keep open avenue for Messiah and advance the, uh, the, the gospel message, like a doctor excising cancer so the body doesn't die. They're either that, or, that's one of his judgments, the therapeutic intervention, or it is the letting go of people to reap what they have sown because they're beyond healing. Those are his judgments. This is out of uh, same author, Manuscript Release, page 14. I haven't finished the other one. We're just doing a little aside. Manuscript Release, page 14, uh, excuse me, volume 14, page 3. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord, 
upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is work at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. The storm and tempest and storm and tempest both by sea and land will be for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows that his time is short and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have dreamed of. So this is one of God's judgments. I've shown the judgments of the Lord come out from him in this way. This is the law of liberty at work. If you insist on going away from the Lord after his entreaties, after his uh, his reproves, after his corrections, after his pleas, after his interventions, after his disciplines, if you continue to rebel and go away from him, he lets you go to reap what you've chosen. And you put yourself under Satan's power. And terrible things come. This is one of his judgments. Continuing on with the quote. Those who teach the people to regard lightly the commandments of God sow disobedience and reap disobedience. Law of sowing and reaping, one of God's assigned law. Okay? Let the restraint imposed by the divine law be wholly cast aside, and human laws will soon be disregarded. Is this prophetic? Do you see modern Western society having rejecting the scripture and the teachings of God, accepting evolutionary teachings in the schools, conditioning several generations now that there is no God, you just evolved, there is no law of God, there is no moral right and wrong, uh, everybody is free, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, everybody's free to decide what they want to, want to believe and do. And then what has happened to the way people deal with the laws of our society? Do people respect other people's properties? Other people's person? Do our, our leaders in government actually abide by and enforce the laws that they swore an oath to uphold? Are we keeping our borders uh, enforced the way the law requires? Are we respecting the constitutional bill of rights of individual liberties that, that, that these officers, these people have sworn to defend and uphold? Or are they using the power of their office to uh, actually violate them? I, I, I want to say here, folks, you should be very thankful for Donald Trump. Amen. I'm not being political. He appointed three justices. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for those three justices, the mandate would have been upheld this past week. It was overturned. The mandate, which is absolutely unconstitutional to use OSHA regulations to try and force employers to force their employees to get a jab that they don't want, is completely unconstitutional. Three of the justices would have supported it. Had those three, had the three that Trump appointed been appointed by the other side, then we would have dictator in the White House doing anything he wants to violate all the individual liberties we have. Think she wanted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah understand that. It, it's reality, folks. It's reality. I'm not advocating for or against any. Po- I'm just. I'm just observing history. What actually happened in history, and what the consequence of that person being in office and nominating and getting in these people on the bench, and then the consequence of the rules that came down and the rulings that came down. This is history. It's not politics. Continue on. Because God forbids dishonest practices, coveting, lying, and defrauding men 
uh, and defrauding, men are ready to trample upon his statutes as a hindrance to their worldly prosperity. But the result of banishing these precepts would be such that they do not anticipate. If the law were not binding, why should any fear to transgress? Property would no longer be safe. Men would obtain their neighbor's possessions by violence. And the strongest would become the richest. Do we see mobs going into stores and just cleaning out? Do you understand that in California, multiple stores have had to close because mobs just go in? Do you understand where they have taken uh, these, 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 these people that have been put in office to enforce the laws that are on the books, have decided that they're not going to enforce the laws on the books, and therefore they let these mobs run wild, and it destroys society. There is a reason for that. Because they want to increase a sense of chaos. They want to increase a sense of fear. They want to make you feel helpless. And the more helpless you feel, read my blog this week on mass delusion. These are factors in driving people to be, to be willing to accept a, a national delusional narrative that you will identify with because it will give you a sense of security and safety and take all this, uh, this, this free-floating anxiety away that you can't do anything about. But it all stems from straying away from God's word and his principles. Life would not be respected. Do we see this happening? That's unbelievable, the things. The marriage vow would have no, would no longer stand as a sacred bulwark to protect the family. Have we seen family breakdown? And again, in what municipalities do we see the family most devastated? In those places that are, uh, least supportive of God's word in their, in their, in their view of things. Courts of justice are corrupted. Rulers are actuated by a desire for gain and love of pleasure. The iniquity and spiritual darkness that prevailed under the, uh, under the supremacy of Rome were the inevitable results of her suppression of the scriptures. But where is to be found the cause of the widespread infidelity, the rejection of God's word, and the consequent corruption under the full blaze of the gospel light in an age of religious freedom? Now that Satan can no longer keep the world under control by withholding the scripture, he resorts to other means to accomplish the same object. To destroy faith in the Bible serves his purpose as well as to destroy destroy the Bible itself. By introducing the belief that God's law is not binding, he has effectually he effectually leads men to transgress as if they were wholly ignorant of its precepts. Do you see the strategy? Do you see the consequence? Do you see the final battle we're entering? Do you see how he's able to lead people to believe the precepts of the law of God are no longer applicable because they all operate under the premise that God's law functions no different than human law and therefore can be set aside. It's just rules that are enforced. But as soon as you get people back to understand, I do this with my patients all the time, the ones I can get to understand design law, that that, that the behavior has consequences. And they're free to live in harmony with the laws of health or break the laws of health. They're free to do it, but they're not free to have health while breaking the laws of health. You can't have that. Okay, if you want health, you got to be in harmony with the laws of health. You can't have a happy marriage while breaking the laws upon which God built healthy marriages to operate. For instance, you can't have a healthy marriage while you're cheating on your spouse. Can't do it. It's not possible. You can't have a healthy marriage while you beat your spouse. You can't do it. It's not possible. And so on and so on and so on. There are laws involved here. It's not an arbitrary thing. And when I get my patients to understand them, then they have power to choose to align themselves with the laws that God built reality upon or not. It's up to them. Some choose to go against it anyway because they just don't care. But many of them choose to harm it and their lives get better. 
This is our responsibility as Christians, to have this message at the end of time, to teach people the reality of God's word and the eternal law that life is built upon, upon which the Sabbath is a sign and a gift for us to remember and not forget, because the whole world has forgotten the truth about God's law. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a creator and that your law is the eternal law of love, truth, liberty that life is built upon. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us, the rainbow, the Sabbath, the signs, the reminders that you are the one who make us holy. And we ask now that your spirit will come and take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, and make us holy agents, holy priesthood, honorable to you, that we can go out and enlighten the world. And we'll see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.